From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. You know, I think that the great ideas are ubiquitous. Everybody's got one. You, you know, your great uncle has a great idea. But great execution of great ideas is rare. And so I'll be discussing how to execute effectively on those great ideas. Uh, and the case that I'll be pulling from is my experience converting a primary care group from volume-based to value-based. That's Blair Bisher. Chief Operating Officer of Sturdy Memorial Hospital, and he's also Adjunct Professor at Suffolk University Sawyer Business School. And he's talking about how to execute great ideas. We'll hear more from Blair in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. Spend more time doing what you love, caring for patients, and less time on clinical documentation. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, captures the patient's story securely and accurately to automatically document at the point of care for increased efficiency and patient throughput. Discover how DAX provides a better patient experience and eliminates afterward documentation. Visit nuance.com slash D-A-X on demand to see DAX in action and explore how DAX can transform your organization. Breast cancer will impact one in eight women. The best way to decrease mortality in breast cancer is early detection. On-site women's health provides healthcare practices and providers with the ability to bring screening mammography in-house, giving their patients the ability to schedule a mammogram at the same time and location as their annual appointment. Partnering with OnSite allows more women to keep up with their annual screening and gives anyone impacted by breast cancer a fighting chance. Learn more at onsitewomenshealth.com. Our guest today is Blair Bisher, Chief Operating Officer, Sturdy Memorial Hospital, and Adjunct Professor at Suffolk University Sawyer Business School. Blair is here today to talk about the strategic planning process and ways to convert a volume-based practice to value. Well, Blair, thanks so much for joining us on the MGMA Insights Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah. So... Let me go over a couple of things. You are currently Chief Operating Officer, and you're also an adjunct professor, Sturdy Memorial Hospital and Suffolk University. Um, share with our audience then just a little bit of your career highlights, how you got to where you are today. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's, it's been a fun journey. I started out on the uh, clinical side. I used to be a certified nurse assistant working at the bedside. And... Um, and then, uh, you know, made my way into administration, got my MHA and worked my way up to uh, chief operating officer. So it's been a pretty uh, rapid progression for me throughout my career and, uh, you know, one that I really enjoyed um, and one that I've actually really glad that it started out on the clinical side. I think that's definitely helped me out a lot. Um, and then I, you know, as I 
I, I don't know. I, I guess as I was uh, kind of going through my career, I thought it'd be a lot of fun to work with students. I mean, I really enjoyed my grad school experience. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I felt like if I would criticize anything about my experience in graduate school, it was a lot of theory, but not a lot of uh, practical application. And so I, that's really what I'd love to do at Suffolk is work with the grad students there on, on uh, you know, giving them real life world scenarios, like, like getting ransomware hacked, uh, you know, and how do you deal with that? And, uh, you know, going a little bit beyond theory, but in uh, Suffolk has been great. They've um, really allowed for us to be able to kind of effectively redesign curriculum in a way to be able to do that with the students, which has been uh, a wonderful opportunity uh, to do that there. So that's kind of been, uh, that's kind of where I've been going in my career. Yeah, let me back up then. It says you teach at Sawyer Business School at the university there. What, what courses do you teach? What are you involved in? So I teach healthcare operations management and performance improvement. Uh, and, you know, I am really a process improvement geek. I love, you know, I love taking flawed systems, figuring out where the failure points are and how do we make it better? Uh, and as that applies to operations, you know, I think earlier in my career, I would kind of get met with the chaos of operational challenges and just meet it with equal chaos in uh, this rapid insanity to try to make things better. Uh, but really process improvement. Uh, I got very lucky working with some folks that uh, had worked at great places like the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and really just got to learn a lot about the science of it, became a certified project manager. Uh, and so, you know, I really enjoy teaching the students kind of those, the science behind operational improvement. That's great. So you were mentioning that you got that start on the clinical side, you know, really working face-to-face with patients. That's very detail-oriented right there in front of you. And now you talk about process improvements and strategic uh, operations and things like that. How did you kind of meld those two sides of your brain together? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I almost feel like it should be a prerequisite if you want to go into healthcare administration to work at the bedside at some point. Right. And I remember being in a meeting at one point throughout my career. I won't identify the system, but they were criticizing the fact that each warm blanket that got handed out was seven dollars. And we needed to try to reduce the amount of warm blankets that we handed out. But I you know, had worked in CAT scan. I had worked in the emergency room. And I'll tell you, at 3 a.m. when a patient's in a lot of pain, there is nothing better when all they've got is a hospital gown than a warm blanket. And so you know, that really, to me, it's. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a marriage of the two. It really was a progression. Um, and, uh, and I think it still really informs, number one, who I am, but number two, how I, how I manage. Okay. So you are wearing multiple hats these days. So what does your day-to-day look like? I don't know if there's a normal day. It's <laughs> every day's the same, but just give us a snapshot then. Sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, every day is a little bit different. That's kind of the fun, I think, of, of operations. But, uh, you know, I try to start out my day with I've got a, a 6 a.m. jujitsu class that I hit most days. That kind of keeps me uh, going, keeps me focused, gets a little energy there. Uh, hit the office. And the way that I've kind of structured things is I've, I've got a daily dashboard. And so I take different data points, up, upload them to my daily dashboard, shoot that out to my management team. And those are just like the KPIs, you know, is, is everything moving in the direction on a daily snapshot? 
find that very helpful. Get that out, take a look at that, see if there's any fires that we need to look at, but hopefully not. And then from there, just, you know, I've got it. The way that I approach meetings is I try to reduce meetings by having a, like a block. So I do a block for operations, finance, and performance every week. It's like two to three hours, which breaks some rules going a little too long. But if I can create that, uh, that block once a week, then I ask everybody to join that time as needed and then get out when you're done. That actually prevents a lot of ad hoc meetings throughout my week, which allows me to do the stuff that I really enjoy, which you know my favorite thing uh, in my job is every single day, I have one or two one-on-one -on -one provider meetings. And it was funny when I was on the clinical side, I remember you know, I'd, I'd sit at the nurse station in the emergency room on the overnight and there was a lot of conversations. And a lot of those conversations were about administration. And so I always swore to myself, you know, when I went into administration, that I would really be uh, intimately involved and aware of, of what was going on in each provider's life. So I do that every day, one or two. It, you know, Zoom actually has been a lifesaver uh, because now it's even that much easier. And, you know, I just check in and I you know, ask about the family and things like that. But then really, you know, from my experience, providers have no problem telling me what's working and what's not working. Uh, and that's just great. That's, that's, just, I get, that's actually the most valuable information that I could possibly get is those daily one-on-ones. And so I just rotate through the entire provider group. We've got about 150. So I can get through everybody about twice a year. Uh, that's a big piece of my day. Um, and, uh, you know, that's kind of the day-to-day. -day. And then you get the exciting things that surprise you and whatnot. But uh, that's kind of what a normal day looks like for me. Wow. Okay. Okay. So, so Blair, let's switch gears for a minute. You are going to be speaking at the MGMA DX conference Wednesday, June 8th. Your session is titled from idea to implementation, successful strategic planning. So hit us up with the elevator pitch. What can someone expect to learn there? Um, so, you know, I think that the great ideas are ubiquitous everybody's got one. You, you know, your great uncle has a great idea, but great execution of great ideas is rare. And so I'll be discussing how to execute effectively on those great ideas. Uh, and the case that I'll be pulling from is my experience converting a primary care group from volume-based to value-based um, when I presented MGMA. How'd I do, Danny? A good elevator pitch? That was wonderful. I'm ready to sign up for it. <laughs> One of the other things about your talk that I'm really interested in, you talk about being able to, uh, well, attendees will learn the best structure for meetings. I am someone who definitely needs that. We need that structural meeting. I don't know if these are Robert's rules of order that you're talking about or <laughs> what we're looking at here, but what does a well-structured meeting look like? And does that shift from what you were talking about with the one-on-one -on -one meetings versus if you have a big board meeting with 20 people around a table, what, what does a good structured meeting look like? Yeah. I mean, I think a good meeting has some constants and I think there's some variation by meeting type. Um, but I, you know, I think the constants is that there always needs to be value add only when I look at meetings, right? So what, what are the defined deliverables that we wanna get out of this? If we can't say what we're trying to get out of this meeting, there's no point for it. Who needs to be at this meeting, right? Usually there's people that don't need to be there or people that do need to be there that aren't there. 
So that's not a value add. So trying to find that sweet spot. And then duration. Does it need to be an hour? Because that's just how we do things around here. Does it need to be 30 minutes or whatnot? So really trying to, to nail down the true value add there. That's all. Those three are always constant. Um, and then I think, you know, just the standard, you know, leaving with clearly defined action items, owner, deadline, but actually writing those out. I'm a huge fan of Trello. And so I actually run my meetings with Trello up on a, on a monitor or on my, my laptop. And so in real time, effectively, it's just all those items are uploaded to the, the cloud effectively. Um, so those are the constants. I think, you know, if it's a board meeting, it's a little bit different, but uh, it's, it's more of the same. Additionally, though, what I wanted to talk about at the conference as well is, uh, you know, looking at the, the structure top to bottom. So as it applies to strategic planning and successful execution on strategic planning, um, you know, I, I think really outlining how you start with a steering committee at the top, the working groups that get chartered and come out of the actual strategic plan at the bottom, and then what's in between, who are the owners of all of this, What's the cadence of how often does the steering committee need to meet if it's the CEO of the system? Not going to have a lot of time. So how do you balance all of that? And, and, and what does that look like uh, on a cadence? And so I'm kind of going to walk through, you know, from the example that I'm using, how we did that and how it, it, it worked uh, It worked out well for us in our, our case. Okay. That is great. And that is very that solve helpful. your problem. It really does. I'm going to know how to run a meeting now. So <laughs> the... The other part that you you talk about in your session that got my interest is building consensus and approval. That's common sense. It makes sense, but easier said than done. How do you do that? And where are the challenges? Yeah, so uh, consensus building, I think, again, it's a lot like great ideas. I think everybody can talk to it. And I think everybody knows most of the principles, but sometimes it's really tough to execute on it. Uh, just because there's, there's, you know, you're, you're driving down the highway at 90 miles an hour and you're trying to keep everybody in the car. And sometimes people are aggressively trying to get out of the car. So how do we, how do we keep everybody rowing in the same direction? You know, from my perspective, there's, it's a two-pronged approach. You've got to manage up and you got to manage down. Um, and so, you know, I think looking at alignment is the first place to start. So if we're going to build consensus, we need to be aligned. We have to have a common goal. So you know, does the organization, as you manage up, have a clearly defined uh, uh, goal, mission, vision, values, or is it something that's been on the wall for 13 years and, and nobody really knows what it is? Um, but I think that's the first place to start. I think you have to engage stakeholders super early um, and really engage them. Right? So, you know, I, I've been, I've participated in some strategic planning efforts where, uh, you know, there's, there's a strategic planning meeting and the consultants present and, uh, you know, but there's not a real opportunity for engagement. And, and maybe it's for good reason. Maybe there's 200 providers. And if we just had an open forum, I mean, it would be insanity or chaos. So then we've got to figure out other ways to engage those providers, right? So is it, you know, a, a live chat feed while we're doing this? Is it polling, surveying ahead of time, et cetera? Or do you just throw caution to the wind and just open it up and see what happens? But you know, I think you've got to have early engagement, but genuine engagement early on. Uh, and then lastly, I just think it's, it's <clears throat> over communicating, super transparent, collaborative style on, on the 
update and back end of all of it. So everybody needs to know at every step along the way, what's going on. And again, my approach to that, that's why I love Trello. Yeah, it's it's not a it's it's a pull system where anytime that anybody wants to know, hey, where are we at on that strategic planning process? They can just go and check and pull that information for themselves. They don't have to wait for the ivory tower to say, okay, here's your update. We'll be back in 90 days. But they can go and get it. We keep that updated, etc. But so I think if you do that, if you have alignment, if you have engagement, and then you have transparent, collaborative, regular communication. Those are kind of the three tricks that, that I've seen work successfully uh, in consensus building. Okay. So let's hear a success story from you then. Do you have a case study, anything you can share where you've worked through a st strategic process or a project and seen it, seen it work, all of these tools you're talking about, you know, in action, working? Sure. Yeah, it's uh, probably one of the highlight of my careers. I, I got a chance um, uh, working at, am I able to name the, the medical center? Is that all right? You're, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Fire at will. So uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, downtown Boston. I was incredibly lucky. I got a chance to be hired by the uh, newly appointed chief of general medicine, Eileen Reynolds. And, you know, she just had an incredible vision for a lot of things. Um, but one of the things that she wanted to do, and she had been an internist with that primary care group, uh, Healthcare Associates, for I think 17 years when she became chief um, associate professor at Harvard Medical School. She'd been at UCSF. She'd done some amazing things. Um, a, a vice president of the education for the resident group. I mean, she just, and what she really wanted to do was convert a volume based, fee for service based primary care group to value. How do we move into the modern era? How do we really start to focus on improving our patients' overall health? Now, there was a few things working against us. Number one, we still live in a fee-for-service world. So at the end of the day, no margin, no mission. Uh, how do we do this? And so uh, once we had determined how we, what we wanted to do, we had to figure out the how. And then we said, we'll figure out the money on the back end of that. So you know, taking... Uh, taking our steering committee and taking our executive committee and the different groups that we pulled together, which we had, we had about 80 faculty, 140 residents, about 150 staff, uh, three associate medical directors, et cetera, uh, and a management team of about eight. We came together and really mapped out a work group structure, and I'll be going over this in Austin, a, a work group structure of 20 different work groups. And so we had the what, but the how was 20 different work groups that all had to be chartered. They all had to have owners um, and they all had to move together uh, in, in progression to be able to achieve this vision of converting from volume to value. So uh, we did that. Uh, and, and then that led us ultimately to, well, how do we fund this thing? One of the craziest, this is the, honestly, this is, I think, one of the most impactful statistics when we look at moving from volume to value. For us to be able to make that conversion successfully, it was going to take a 40% increase in staffing. And so that was a massive expense. And so we, we worked on how we would be able to, to fund that, ultimately submitted a proposal to the medical center, which we got approved, which was amazing. Uh, and of course, everything after that was uh, uh, flawlessly executed, except for the fact that COVID came crashing in. So. Uh, it's been an incredibly exciting journey. 
I would say though, from a strategic planning perspective, figuring out who do we want to be, how do we want to do it, how are we going to fund it? That was the best experience that I've had and just doing it with a, an incredible group of people uh, was a blast. That is really cool. You were talking about looking at the data, seeing you needed to increase staff. What are some other KPIs in a, you can use that as an example, that project or a different one, the KPIs you're interested in and strategic planning so that you make sure the, the plan you have is the right one. You haven't gone off course there, or if you do need to course correct at all. Yeah. So this is a great question. And I think if you're asking this question, you're in great shape, right? You know, if you <laughs> want to know what KPIs should we be focused on, you're already in, in better shape uh, than, than most. So, you know, I think from my perspective, starting out at 30,000 feet, the KPIs need to be aligned with the institutional imperatives. You know, I've, in my career, I focused on things that I later realized were not key imperatives for the organization. They were Blair imperatives, which, you know, I think they're important, but if the institution doesn't, it doesn't matter. And uh, it can be an exercise in futility. So I think starting there, uh, <laughs> this sounds uh, common sense, but the data needs to be obtainable. You got to be able to get the data. And a lot of times, you know, we've set goals on things throughout my career, and then you go and try to get the data afterwards, and somebody's like, no, I'm sorry, we can't get it, or it's not clean, and it's going to take three months to clean it, et cetera, uh, or it's going to be a six-month lag on the data, and then it's basically useless. So uh, I, think, I think that's an important part to KPI, too. And then, you know, of course, the other piece is that everybody, and I've done this, and I can pull up right now, so I'm kind of uh, a hypocrite here as I tell you this, but I've built dashboards with like 16 or 20 different KPIs which is insane in one regard, because of course you can't be good at 16 or 20 different things. So trying to really call that down as much as possible. You know, and so I think those KPIs can vary by project. You know, for us, and I would say the one constant KPI that I think applies to almost anything is uh, patient engagement, right? That capacity utilization effectively from the operational side but you know those that no-show rate, that same-day cancel rate, that provider bump rate, whatever it is that you're trying to do, if patients are not showing up, you're probably going to fail. So I, you know, I think it's a little bit different by category. But you know, that was a big one, even in Pop Health. It's not about revenue, but if that diabetic patient's not making their appointments, they're going to have a tough time doing well. And and so um, you know, those were those are some of the things that we focused on there. Okay. Final question for you then, do you have any resources you can share with our listeners who may want to know more about strategic planning and aren't able to sign up for your course there? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I will say this. From my perspective, as I've gone throughout my career, you know, I've wanted to find uh, the true North Star on how to uh, find successful strategic planning and execution. And where I've actually found the most success and not to send people in a million different directions, but is to go on a journey. You know, I think the, the different books that I've read, the different podcasts that I've read, the different conferences I've gone to, the different webinars uh, that I've attended, uh, the different colleagues that I've reached out to and just said, what have you guys done as it relates to strategic planning or whatever it is that I'm trying to figure out about? That to me is actually the most helpful because it's almost like looking at that diamond and however you turn it, you get a different refraction. You know, there's not one source of truth out there on successful strategic planning. And so I think getting as many 
sources of information as you can as possible, I think is great. Um, if I would say my personal favorite is probably uh, probably talking to peers that have been through strategic planning initiatives in, in their career. You know, I've been through several at different institutions, uh, and every one of them was wildly different. Every group that I work with is wildly different. Um, and, uh, you know, I love being able to, to talk to folks about their experience. So I would say, uh, you know, it's more of a shotgun approach than a surgical precision. Okay. Well, Blair, thanks again for joining us uh, today on the podcast and shedding a light on strategic planning. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And I think you've got an amazing radio voice. Thank you. I'll, I'll yeah. keep that in the recording as well. So thank <laughs> you. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Blair Bisher, Chief Operating Officer at Sturdy Memorial Hospital. Blair's also an adjunct professor at Suffolk University, the Sawyer Business School. And Blair's going to be a featured speaker this week at MGMA's Pathways Conference DX, which will be held June 7th and 8th. And it's not too late to sign up. So go to mgma.com slash events to register now. We also want to thank Nuance and OnSite Women's Health for sponsoring this week's show. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, captures the patient's story securely and accurately to automatically document at the point of care. Discover how DAX provides a better patient experience and eliminates afterward documentation. Visit nuance.com slash DAX on demand to see DAX in action and explore how DAX can transform your organization. Breast cancer will impact one in eight women. Onsite Women's Health provides healthcare practices and providers with the ability to bring screening mammography in-house. Partnering with Onsite allows more women to keep up with their annual screening and gives anyone impacted by breast cancer a fighting chance. Learn more at OnsiteWomensHealth.com. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. And to access all of our podcasts, go to mgma.com slash listen. And if you want to add to the conversation or suggest experts for us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights Podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.